From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how the closed loop fund is changing the recycling scene, why Pepsi is repairing watersheds in Latin America, the implications of COP22 and the new political realities, and are companies prepared for the $14 billion water risk? We're drowning in possibilities this week on 350. It's November 18th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me here is Lauren Hepler, senior writer. Lauren, um, it's <laughs> the, we seems to continue to be a one-story week in some ways. I know. I was just talking to a friend about what seems like a, a pretty intense election hangover still in the media and <laughs> lots of parts of the country. Yeah, I continue to, to hear from people uh, around the country um just i mean they're still shell shocked it's been uh 10 days now and they're still i can't believe it they're depressed and you know i mean you know for 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 those who were not for uh Donald Trump um you know yeah that's tough and and you know even but even Hillary saying look we got to move on and and let's this is disappointing but let's let's get going and i i think it's it's i know we're going to talk a little bit about some presidential transition stuff but um, for me, what's interesting here is, is you know, what's the business community really going to do? And I, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that were either at or in relation to COP22 and Marrakesh this week. Um, but I'm still not yet seeing, and it's early days, the, you know, is the business community going to really step up, not just the sustainability execs, but CEOs and their shareholders and board members and say, do not roll back climate policies. Yeah, definitely a good question and an open question. But one thing I did see, I think Fortune reported it this week, was that 360 businesses and investors, and included the likes of DuPont, General Mills, Kellogg, Nike, some really big names, did go ahead and send a letter to uh, President-elect Trump, as well as President Obama and Congress. Uh, and, and they basically just reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Agreement on climate change. I know one of the things, Joel, we've talked about is tracking some of these commitments that have come out of the White House and the federal government. So very curious to see if those have have legs or what we're looking at moving forward. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little skeptical about, you know, just writing that letter. And, and, and so, you know, because it's not, obviously, it's not just Trump. In fact, you know, we think we know what he, what he um, how stands, how he stands on, on climate. Although, you know, even at the end of this second week, uh, you know, post-election, the articles in the business press, I see the Wall Street Journal every morning, for example, are still asking which Donald Trump's going to show up on January 20th, not to mention 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And so, but so it's also Congress. I mean, I think in some ways, Congress is going to drive this more than anything because the Republican Party in particular. Um, and what's what, you know, I've been hearing for a year or more, certainly, you know, since we were in Paris last year at almost this time, um, is that there is a core of Republican members of Congress 
who believe that we should be taking collective action on climate at minimum you know the Par- the paris agreement and possibly the clean power plan and some of the other things where the, whatever the specifics are they're actually on the side of climate action but they need air cover they need political cover and until we can figure out how to do that <clears throat> it's going to be uh, we're going to be stuck in this sort of world we've been in for a long long time and that's going to be the interesting thing is what does the business community need to do to get, you know, and who is the who's the one who's going to be the first Republican to say, you know, I've, I've come to realize we need to do something here. We saw this with gay marriage. We've seen this with so many other things where somebody breaks the logjam and little by little and hopefully really fairly quickly, a, a few others come. You know, we don't need that many to get the you know the, the the enough members of congress to you know just create a bandwagon and as we always know we you know the politicians are more likely to see a parade and get in front of it than to start their own so how do we start that parade yeah definitely lots of moving parts also the courts uh, looking at the clean power plan obviously is the supreme court in play so lots to keep in mind and one person who's been thinking a lot about that is our senior writer heather clancy so let's jump right into the week in review So as I mentioned, our senior writer, Heather Clancy, had been working on a piece in the wake of the election titled, Does Your Company Have a Presidential Transition Strategy? So just sort of trying to to take a minute to step back a bit and say, okay, uh, the election is over. We know sort of that that there have been these promises to repeal several executive actions uh, under the Obama administration, including ostensibly the Clean Power Plan, which is framed as sort of a a job-destroying measure, uh, or at least it was on the campaign trail, Uh, and then obviously what we've discussed in terms of canceling the Paris Climate Agreement. So Heather, what she was doing here was really looking at sort of, uh, again, this question of how businesses sort of come into play and and how they transition their strategies along with the new administration. Yeah, and I like what I think is the core message here, which is that you know, when you're talking to the the new administration, and I, and I think this would be just as true for Congress, um, she writes, talk economics, and he's bound to listen more closely, at least that's the theory, as opposed to, uh, now I'm paraphrasing, talking about, you know, the planet or the species or even floods and, you know, pestilence and everything else. Um, you know, where it's, it's, it's easier to say, well, that's so abstract. But... Um, and one of the missed opportunities, and I don't know in this election, as we as we well know, everyone in the world world knows that actual issues weren't discussed all that much, and so this probably wouldn't have actually wouldn't have been an opportunity to do this in climate, least of all among the you know some of the big big issues. If you look at you know jobs and immigration, two of the defining issues, uh, it seems among the electorate. At, links to climate change, uh, jobs in the short term, uh, immigration in the not that much longer term. And if you look at what's happened in Syria and all the refugees leaving and how that's been tied to uh, to climate change. I don't know. Did you see, um, have you been watching the years of living dangerously? I have seen some bits and pieces of them. There was one, I guess it was last week's show, had Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, uh, in 
uh, actually following um, refugees uh, across borders and really up close and personal watching this re refugee thing take place and talking to them and you know, asking why are you leaving and they're saying well there's no water and we couldn't farm and you know they're, they're basically without talking about climate change specifically talking uh, referring to the impacts of a change in climate and and that's one of the big drivers of why they had to leave their country to go to to Europe or or, or, or somewhere and so you know no and then and and of course some of those some of that somewhere is the United States you know that those are just dots that need to be connected it's interesting though because another thing that we've talked about sort of for years now that Heather keyed in on on her piece is this idea of sort of collaborative partnerships between companies and NGOs and how that looks like it's about to get a lot more important in the next four years uh, at minimum. I know uh, it, one of the angles people are talking about is the, the potential for, for NGOs to get more involved on the legal side if, if there does need to be sort of challenging policies being made, uh, which was sort of the reverse of what happened with the clean power plan of that getting charged, uh, getting challenged in court from the folks who were opposed to, to sort of climate mitigation efforts. Um, but I think it, it will be interesting to see what folks like uh, the heads of World Wildlife Fund or NRDC or even the Autobahn Society do in tandem with some of these large companies that are already working with them or perhaps others that haven't been as in play in the past. Well, and it's actually a full court press because you need uh, one other really important constituency that needs to be brought in here is the investment community. Um, the, the, some of the largest shareholders, uh, board members of companies, not just CEOs, because CEOs work for the boards and the boards, you know, work for the shareholders. And, um, you know, how, how do we coordinate and who's going to do that? Who is really going to take the lead? I mean, it, again, it's, it's early days and a lot of this probably won't really start to manifest until, January or maybe even February, but there is, uh, as I think most people who are checking out the news these days, uh, and then I'll say that some people I know are still not willing to do that, um, is this divide between, um, you know, this notion of normalization where some people say, well, Trump's going to be our president, let's now try and figure out how to work with him, or versus the uh, let's stop everything before it even gets anywhere which I think we're going to see from the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren crowd. And so, you know, the the the, the, the Democrats and by sort of extension, the, the pro-climate action crowd is, is uh, I think, going to be in a little bit of a tizzy. But how do you bring everyone together uh, so that it's not just individual NGOs or collective NGOs or individual companies or collective companies working together, but companies, nonprofits, activists, uh, investors, the faith-based community, which has a lot of uh, also investors, uh, labor, and uh, and everyone really working on both uh, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, the, the White House and Capitol Hill. Right. And at the global level, too, uh, sort of this question I'm interested in is what's going to happen with the sustainable development goals? I don't think I've heard, I, I might be wrong here, but I don't think I've heard Trump sort of address those specifically. The, a lot of the emphasis has been on the, the Paris Agreement. Um, so we, we've just been writing more in the last few months about companies sort of plugging into the SDGs and, and setting a strategy there. Um, so curious to see how that conversation evolves as well. Yeah, I said seriously that 
he or his people really know much about them. The SDGs are voluntary. Um, they're they're a collective commitment, but they don't have the power of, uh, that uh, of of legal commitment that the Paris Agreement does. Um, and I, you know, I, we we've been talking a lot about. Uh, the sustainable development goals, both within internally at GreenBiz and also with a lot of our uh, close corporate fr- uh, friends and contacts about you know, how they're thinking about it. And um, I think that's not going to be part of the national discussion anytime soon. But one part of uh, the sustainable development goals has to do with two stories we did this week uh, on water. Um, and I think that's let's move over to those. Uh, Anya Kalamizer, uh, associate editor, wrote a, a really terrific piece on titled "Are Companies Prepared for the 14 Billion Dollar Water Risk?" Uh, what she's talking about there are is the the 14 billion dollars of water-related impacts from drought, flooding, and increased water stress uh, that comes out. This that comes out of a, a new. Uh, CDP report called Thirsty Business, Why Water is Vital to Climate Action uh, that came uh, was released at a global water forum at COP22 in Marrakesh this week. And, um, I, you know, the CDPs for a long time, uh, uh, you know, CDP used to call be called the Carbon Disclosure Project because it started uh, working with shareholders and companies to, you know, bring more uh, – compel companies to report and therefore measure and take action ultimately on climate. But it's now CDP because it's gone beyond just carbon. Uh, now looking at the water risks, uh, this is these are significant for companies. Yeah, they said that more companies than ever sort of responded to, to this year's survey. There were 607 companies that responded, which is a 49% uptick since last year alone. Uh, and they point to specific examples like General Motors, which apparently disclosed that in the U.S. spent $8 million due to increased water rates from drought conditions and hydroelectric costs. Um, other uh, big industrial users like United Technologies disclosed investing $1.7 million dollars in water saving infrastructure um so it's sort of it seems like this dual dynamic where you have companies responding to severe constraints like droughts or on the other end um severe surpluses like flooding um but also sort of investing in conservation measures and sort of infrastructure to make their operations more efficient yeah and i think it's important to point out that this is still well a, a drop in the bucket that that the 607 companies that they that are just reporting that means they're looking at their their water risks and and vulnerabilities which is you know the first part of doing something about it and 8 million dollars for for general motors yeah i'm sure nobody wanted to spend that but that's really you know just background noise it's a rounding error on their phone bill i imagine uh so uh you know we're, we're not yet at the point where companies are really uh really materially impacted i mean not most of them aren't but we're going to be seeing as if climate change continues the in the pace that everyone from the scientific community anticipates um we're going to be seeing more um more problems and with the the very vulnerable and brittle uh, supply chains we have. Um, it doesn't take much to really roil a you know supply chain from uh, uh, around the world. As I was bring up this uh, flood in 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 Thailand uh, a few years ago, that 
you know, wiped out the market for disk drives globally for the better part of a year. Um, and, you know, we're seeing water risks affecting lots of companies from power plants that don't have cooling water to chip fab and, and, and so many others. And, you know, we haven't even really gotten into agriculture yet. So, you know, what if you're a shareholder for one of these companies and you are looking out for the next few years at, at where the vulnerabilities are and what could be a material change to the company's uh, balance sheet, uh, you have to be looking at water. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned disk drives because CDP does break down sort of the industries that responded to their survey this year by sector. And the IT sector definitely was the leader of the pack at a 73% representation uh, that compares to 58% for consumer staples and 54% for materials. Um, but on the flip side, we had in, a, in another industry that maybe is more traditionally associated with water use, the, the beverage industry. Our senior writer, Barbara Grady, wrote a story this week called Why PepsiCo Aims to Repair Watersheds in Latin American Cities. Um, so, so the idea here is sort of working at the watershed level um, where you're sort of going uh, a step before you even get into supply chain or any of that and thinking about sort of how ecosystems hold rain, uh, sort of store water over time, and also absorb carbon from the air and provide a habitat, obviously. Um, and this is something that we've, we've heard about companies investing in for a while now, obviously relates back to what we were just talking about with the sustainable development goals. Um, but PepsiCo this week announced a project to, to work in five areas in Latin America, Mexico City and another city in Mexico, as well as Sao Paulo, Brazil, Colombia, and Guatemala. Um, it's a total of $3 million project. So again, sort of one of those uh, quantitatively a, a drop in the bucket type things, but they do aim to restore, to restore 600,000 cubic meters of aquifer land. So sort of an interesting natural capital or ecosystem play. Yeah, this is an interesting area, and, and we've written about, as you said, uh, this uh, kind of thing. Uh, Dow has been working for a number of years with the Nature Conservancy in Latin America uh, to develop tools and demonstrate models of how do you value the, the financial uh, impact of, of nature in business decisions. And uh, they've been working in Bogota and Sao Paulo, Quito, and, and bottling plants and hydro facilities and water utilities in those areas – to help them really understand the value of water and basically asking the question, what would it cost uh, to replace nature? In other words, to install their own reservoir or filtration camp if they didn't have the quantity and quality of water that they're currently getting. And so what would that cost? And, and understanding that uh, cost uh, can drive decisions. Do you – is it more cost effective to, to – uh, repair a, a stream or a stream bed or, or take some other uh, remediation actions versus building a large concrete and steel Stalin-esque water filtration plant uh, at significantly more money. And they're finding, yeah, there are other opportunities to actually work with nature than try to control it. And I, I think that's uh, sort of in the spirit as well of, of – of, and we've had several stories. Heather Clancy wrote a great piece on Dow's plan to bank a billion dollars on natural capital by 2025 uh, back uh, in April uh, uh, last year. And I think that's what's going on here uh, with, with PepsiCo, just really understanding – uh, you know how, and Latin America seems to be one of the proven grounds, but this could be uh, almost anywhere in in Asia and Africa, uh, even in North America. You know, how do we value water?
So this week, a lot of the conversation has revolved around not only the impending presidency of Donald Trump, but also the COP22 climate negotiations happening in Paris. One timely development in the business world, however, is the fact that a total of 200 companies have now signed on to the World Resource Institute's Science-Based Targets Initiative. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about corporate climate action is Cynthia Cummins, who is the Director of Private Sector Climate Mitigation in WR's Business Center. How's it going, Cynthia? Great, thanks. So let's start off with the basics. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the news this week that, again, sort of amid the COP22 climate talks happening in Morocco, that 200 companies have now signed on to the Science-Based Targets Initiative? So, yes, so this news is very timely because it demonstrates that corporate climate action is global and the momentum is proving itself to be unstoppable regardless of political events. Uh, and we're moving ahead, way ahead of schedule. We never expected to have this many companies, 200 companies, 18 months into the initiative. And what does it mean to actually sign on to the initiative? I saw in the news release this week that 26 companies have actually had targets approved by the initiative. Um, so I think it would be helpful to just sort of hear a little bit more about what it actually means to, to set science-based goals. Our initiative is trying to define what we think best practice is on target setting and, and science-based target setting specifically. So we've developed a set of criteria um, that we think define best practice on science-based targets. And um, and we review target um, – the companies have two years to develop a target after they make a commitment. And then um, – Within that time period, they submit the target to uh, the initiative for review, and we do a detailed review against these quality criteria because we want to make sure that we're endorsing targets that we think really define best practice and leadership. This time last year at, at COP21, I know there were 112 companies that had signed on. So I'm just curious sort of how the program has evolved um, sort of in the past year or over the 18 months it, it's been around um, with the Paris agreement obviously coming into effect uh, and, and sort of what you're seeing in terms of the sectors that are jumping on board, the size of companies, those sorts of things. Right. So the companies that have committed um, come from a wide range of sectors, food and beverage, electric utilities, automotives, and the geographies, uh, they come from geographies that cross um, over from 27 different countries, um, including U.S., Europe, and emerging economies. So what this proves to us is that all types of companies can get on a low-carbon path. And I know the sort of the, the big question now that's sort of overarching the, the climate talks happening in Marrakesh is sort of how is global climate action impacted by the change in administration in the U.S.? Uh, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that um, you think the, the 200 companies signing on is sort of a testament to uh, operating above the level of day-to-day -day politics, but I am curious, uh, are there any concerns that corporate climate momentum will fall off in any way if the political climate does start to, to change in the U.S.? Um, well, we're still kind of recalibrating and seeing what we think the impacts will be of the new administration, but we think the momentum is um, is is growing so fast that we don't see it stopping. And most of the, the, the largest representation in science-based targets initiative are from U.S. companies. And I think that um, 
the executives of these companies, the leaders of these companies, understand the benefits of moving towards a low-carbon economy, and I don't see that stopping. I really expect the momentum to continue to grow and that business leaders will see well, business leaders understand the important role that they have to play with businesses representing up to 70% of world emissions. Mm-hmm. And to that end, I'm, I'm just curious, anecdotally or what you hear uh, in, in member surveys, what are sort of some of the, the arguments or the, the cases for committing to something like science-based targets that, that tend to resonate with a corporate audience? Are we talking about economic imperatives like shoring up your energy bills long term? Or where do you think there are those opportunities to sort of um, continue progress with a corporate demographic? Mm-hmm. I think well, companies are joining the initiative for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, for some of them, target, start, target setting is already standard practice among companies. So what science-based targets does is just it provides them a lot of clarity and like, gives them a clear direction about where they need to go. Um, for companies historically have been just often just looking at what projects they have already in the pipeline and seeing based on those emission reduction projects, where can they get to? Instead, this kind of turns the conversation around and instead says, okay, well, where do we need to be based on the science? And then um, based on that target, where how are we going to get there cost effectively? So companies are telling us that it really may, simplifies the conversation for them and makes it a lot easier for them to plan their targets. Um, so it simplifies the process. Mm-hmm. It also just helps to define them as a leader and make it clear to stakeholders that they're doing their part in supporting the transition to low carbon economy. Um, and these companies see that having a smooth transition by preparing for it now with setting these targets and achieving them is, is, um, is better for, makes much more sense for their business rather than being unprepared and having a more disruptive transition. Mm-hmm. And to that end, when it comes to setting science-based goals, I think uh, a lot of people obviously think about emissions and, and tying those to sort of climate projections, uh, tying emissions reduction goals rather to, to broader climate trends. But are there other sort of material issues that companies are looking at through a scientific lens, whether it's water or waste or other sorts of sustainability issues? Um, you mean in terms of using science-based targets as um, a framework for other environmental impacts? Correct. Yeah. So I think yeah, I think we with science-based targets for greenhouse gases is more straight. Even though it's not simple, it is more straightforward than for other impacts. So I think that's why you've seen so much momentum on greenhouse gas science-based targets first. But I think next you'll start to see that. Um, that companies find this framing of the issues um, appealing um, because it gives them clarity and um, you'll start to see more um, methods being developed for how to set science-based targets for water next and and then hopefully for land and other impacts after that. Um, but we definitely see that um, this, that this uh, framework or philosophy does resonate with companies and, um, and we'll see, I think this this yeah, methodology will grow. Mm-hmm. Great. And any last thoughts on sort of the, the backdrop of the climate talks happening in Marrakesh, anything you're hearing from, from colleagues who are there on the ground um, or sort of the, the corporate role in the broader global climate action picture? 
Yeah, I mean, we're still waiting to hear, get more feedback about what's happening there, but we're all clear that uh, the work that we do at WRI and that other NGOs are doing it just becomes more significant and that businesses have even a more role, important role to play in, in, um, and in getting out there and being leaders. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Cynthia Cummins of WRI, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. One of the stories we ran this week was about a new report at the intersection of sustainability and risk management. And here to talk about that report is one of its co-authors, our very own vice president and senior analyst, John Davies. Hey, Joel. How are you doing? I'm okay. Um, So tell us a little bit about the report. First of all, who's behind it and, and what are you trying to find out? So we worked on this with uh, Marsh and McLennan companies, as well as the Association for Financial Professionals, the AFP, which our audience may not be very familiar with, but it's a group of treasurers who get together to discuss risk management and other items for treasury. And I'm not sure everybody knows Marsh and McLennan. Tell us a little bit about them. So they are a collection of companies that focus on uh, the global risk management as well as helping in insurance and reinsurance and consulting. Probably the biggest thing our audience would know about them is that they help write the World Economic Forum's risk annual risk report. So it tells us what some of the, the issues around catastrophic climate change or uh, public health issues or or uh, terrorism or the kinds of things companies need to be looking out for. Right. So we started talking with them about this topic of risk and sustainability, and we wanted to find out how, how much um, sustainability people were talking to risk people and whether the people in Treasury and risk were actually talking to sustainability exec- executives. And so we polled people from our Green Biz executive network about their interaction with Treasury and risk. And then the Association for Financial Professionals polled their audience of treasurers and risk uh um, practitioners about how often they integrate with sustainability. So what did you find out? We found out that there need to be a lot more introductions made <laughs> between the risk people and the, the sustainability folks, but really inside the same companies, inside, inside the same companies. And, and really a lot of the treasury and risk people thought they were having close conversations with sustainability and that that was part of it. But a lot of the sustainability people indicated that they had had no interaction with their risk and treasury folks. I think most people don't appreciate what risk is all about. I mean, you think it's on its face, it's about, you know, oh, my God, this could bad thing could happen. But every decision from investments to, I don't know, everything they do it has some kind of risk. Sometimes it's little or no risk. Sometimes it's big risk and that and weighing that. I mean, so where does this really fit in? With sustainability, it sounds like if it has to do with everything in a business, it could have everything to do with sustainability. It has a lot to do with sustainability. It's mostly 
um, you know, risk sits where strategy is being developed. And so there's some really great case studies in the report from Campbell Soup, from Starbucks. And I think what was really interesting is it's, it, it's risk and opportunity. You know, they're really both sides of the same coin. And that's what, what is interesting about this work and, and what we found out in some of our research. So give us an example of where, if sustainability department and risk department played together better or spoke together more, that would it would benefit the company. Well, one great story is Starbucks uh, treasurer Drew Wolf, who um, floated a, a sustainability bond, which I think we've written about before, and we're going to have Drew uh, at GreenBiz 17 talking about this and, and doing a workshop and talking about the sustainability bond. And I think he went to the sustainability people and they forged a partnership um, where they now see that there are many more opportunities that treasure, Treasury could really support the sustainability efforts. They just weren't having that conversation before. So this is, I mean, a lot of sustainability people struggle to make the business case for what they're doing, whether it's an investment or, or just what the, the benefit is tangible or less tangible to the company. Is that where this could be helpful? I think where it can really be helpful and, you know, much like sustainability, the risk, uh, the, the structure of a risk group is really a risk committee that draws from all different parts of the organization. And so I think the, the big piece of advice or one of the pieces of advice in the report is get a seat on that risk committee and start giving the input from sustainability, and then those programs have a better chance of getting funded and getting traction. And are some companies actually managing to get sustainability people or are sustainability people actually getting to be on their uh, risk committees these days? They are. And we have examples from, you know, EMC, which got acquired by Dell, but, you know, how they were working together more from Campbell Soup and how risk and opportunity play in their world. So it's happening. And we're hoping that by promoting this both to the Association for Financial Professionals, as well as to the Green Biz audience, that we see a lot more of those conversations occur. That's great. Um, really interesting stuff. So how do you get a copy of the report? You can go to greenbiz.com and download a copy of the report. I've also got an article up there where I interview uh, Marsha McLennan's Global Risk Center's director, Alex Wittenberg, and we dig down into some of the um, aspects of where sustainability, in his perspective, may be where risk was 10 years ago, and what are some of the lessons we can learn from that. Cool. Uh, and of course, we'll have the link to that on the page for this webcast. GreenViz Vice President and Senior Analyst, John Davies, thanks so much for this work and for stopping by. Thanks, Joel.
So, Joel, you had a piece this week checking in with an organization, the Closed Loop Fund, that we've been chronicling since their founding about two years ago. I'll let you give a little bit more detail, but obviously sort of a very buzzy endeavor given um, the traction we're seeing for the circular economy and concepts around rethinking waste. So what's going on here and why check in with Closed Loop Fund now? So Closed Loop Fund is uh, was uh, created uh, two years ago, as you said, by a group of companies, 3M, Colgate, Coke, Dr. Pepper, Goldman Sachs, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Procter & Gamble, a number of others, uh, Unilever and, and Walmart, two of the bigger ones, they each kicked in between 5 and $10 million to create an aggregate fund of $100 million that were, would provide municipalities with, with uh, lower and zero interest loans and, and also work with private firms, all engaged in how do we spur recycling in in uh, well, I think this is primarily in the United States, um, which, is sort of, which is in itself sort of an interesting question because recycling, you know, which is sort of the gateway for you know so many communities and families and individuals and companies uh, on environmental issues, is still you know not going so well. That the rates have been flat. We sort of you know reached peak recycling, I guess, a couple few years ago, and um, and is the the. It, it's just uh, we're sort of losing ground now, uh, and there, but equally important, and and this is why these companies are investing. Americans toss out over eleven billion dollars worth of recyclable materials every year, according to a report by As You Sow, which is an advocacy group, and that, those are materials that a lot of these companies, the the Pepsi's and Cokes and and, and Unilever's and Procter and Gamble's would like to be able to get access to to put into their products and, and packaging because a lot of them have made commitments to uh, increase the use of recycled material. So they, they can't get enough. And so that's their motivation for doing this. It's not to make money. In fact, uh, some of these, you don't, you don't make a lot of money off of zero interest loans from uh, according to my calculator. So that's the, the gist. And, and this is the first time uh, two years in that they um, really started talking about it. They released this week a uh, an impact report, sort of a status report on what they're doing, and um, gave me an inside look a couple of weeks ago, which gave me a chance to talk to uh, some of their the city is, uh, in, of Memphis, uh, well, a CEO of a recycling company they've been working with in Chicago, um, uh, one of their investors, Unilever, and, and several others, uh, and sort of looking at how this is going. So you mentioned also this concept of peak recycling. Uh, I'm so curious in the evolution of the closed loop fund, is this focused um, still on sort of the nuts and bolts of recycling or what's sort of the purview they're looking at? Well, they're looking at three parts of the recycling uh, infrastructure. One is collection. I mean, there are some cities that, you know, uh, the city of Memphis, for example, got a loan to put 105,000, you know, recycling bins on curbside. They just didn't have them out yet. There's, so they there are recycling deserts, particularly in small towns and rural communities and multifamily housing, low-income areas. So just giving more people access, number one. Number two is something they call sortation. I don't know why that word, they use that instead of just sorting. But it, this these are the building or upgrading the facilities, uh, what they call municipal recycling facilities or MRFs. Um, to uh, you know, where you have the single stream recycling, it goes. Everything gets dumped in the can. The can gets dumped on a conveyor belt, and it all gets sorted through 
uh, a number of automated uh, and some hand sorting uh, capabilities. Uh, that is obviously much better than putting your plastic here and your glass here and your paper here because uh, people just don't want to do that. So collection, sortation, and then processing is how do you turn this back into materials and uh, particularly some of the harder to convert kinds of things like mixed plastics or some of the you know the, there's this plastics numbering system one and two is or, or soda bottles and milk jugs uh, things that are fairly easy but numbers three through seven are more problematic so by attacking those different pieces of the of the uh, recycling uh, I guess supply chain or recycling process they hope to you know break through some of the barriers and and uh choke points that are keeping more recycled materials from the from being available in terms of the value they're adding though are we talking is it is it mostly just sort of investors give them the cash and then they the the folks at the closed loop fund sort of go from there or is there some sort of uh more, more fundamental collaboration going on well, a couple couple things. One that you know, this is what investors would call smart money. It's not just here's some money, go do your thing. But here's money. But we also have expertise. The closed loop fund, the team uh, out of New York that's that's heading this up. Uh, you know, th- these are people who who have uh, been involved with uh, this process for various points. Uh, Rob Kaplan, for example, was at Walmart and, and and actually when he was at Walmart was sort of their representative and helped create the closed loop fund. He's now one of their managing partners. And and Ron Gonan, his uh, co-managing director, I guess, is um, uh, used to run Recycle Bank. So they have actual industry expertise, and and they also, you know, if, if you're in a city, a Department of Public Works, or even if you're a private recycling company, you probably haven't done this many times. You you may only do this once in terms of building out the infrastructure or putting out uh, uh, collection bins. And yet there are ways to do it right and ways that don't work as well. And so they're bringing that kind of expertise to the table. Uh, but you asked about collaboration. I, I think that's one of the interesting parts uh, because uh, I asked uh, Jonathan Atwood, who is the uh, vice president for sustainable business and communications for Unilever North America. He's basically Unilever's sustainability lead uh, uh, on this continent. And I asked him that. I said, are you working together or is this just sort of passive investors? And um, I was I was kind of surprised about you know, how much they are collaborating and how enthusiastic he was. Uh, let's take a listen. Regularly getting together, regularly reviewing proposals coming in, really working out now kind of the value of the due diligence process, which, you know, I think I think there was at the, at the formation of the fund, you know, I think there was probably some level of wonder about how many will actually apply. Will we be just waiting for something to happen? I think we're now at a point where we have not too much to review, but a lot to review. It's based on it's based on material, it's based on location, it's based on you know the technology that that company or you know that city is looking to do. I think it's a, the ultimate Joel in in kind of um, in a pre collaborative space. Not everybody gets exactly what they want. Uh, by design, and you know we've been everybody's been very open about what what their what their needs are or what they're you know what they're focused on, but it doesn't mean that you know one company wins. I I never have the feeling like one company won today and everybody else lost, because the the, the whole idea here is let's let's start getting more valued material back, and and raising the bar for for all materials. That's one design principle. I think the other design principle is sitting down with the other companies hearing what they're going through, 
you start to feel amongst a, a you know a, a group of people that are actually experiencing the exact same things and have a lot of insight uh, that they're willing to share. And we and it's I, I find it to be extremely collaborative, very open. And one of the exciting benefits for me, even outside of recycling, is I think the model is the model it potentially becomes the repeatable model for other kinds of major conversations on other very difficult challenges. So we could, you know, I could envision a day when we have a kind of a CLF on biodigesters, or we might have a CLF on, you know, on, on, on agriculture, where, you know, there's lots of groups talking, but all of a sudden, you know, the companies have come together, they've, they've put financial resources on the table, they've put technical expertise on the table, and the, the, the goal is one that we all share. I've been really, really, really pleased with it. I've been really pleased with the, with the interaction. I think this model of corporations and companies coming together and putting financial resources on the table really is going to be the driver of transformative change. Not waiting for government, not waiting for others to kind of step in. It's, it's like we want in on this issue. It's important to our company. We don't, we don't necessarily know what the end looks like. We don't, you know, we've tried on our own and didn't, didn't get as far as we wanted to. Let's do it together. What's really interesting, and I think you know, he made this point very clearly, is that this kind of corporate collaboration is something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of. It's not exactly new. Companies have been doing this for a while, particularly under the auspices of organizations like BSR. But I think we're going to be seeing more companies pooling um, pooling their money, pooling their talent, pooling their expertise, and, 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 and in some ways, sometimes even their customers or suppliers to address some of these uh, challenges that that individually they're incapable of, of, of addressing, but collectively they can uh, hopefully make some progress. Uh, this is really a wave of the future. How do companies collaborate in this sort of what you know pre-competitive environment, as that term of art is? Uh, and it's pretty exciting. So look for a lot more, not just in recycling, not just in the circular economy, although there will be a lot in both of those, but in many other aspects of business and sustainability. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find links to the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. Uh, thanks, as always, to podcast director Soraya Melkonian. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. 350 at greenbiz.com. And let others know about this podcast. We're getting a great new audience every week. Uh, but we'd be grateful if you'd help us spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or any other means at your disposal. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350, uh, Turkey edition, I guess. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Mm-hmm.